Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on the Creature Called Man Chapter 3 The Antiquity of Civilization Part 4 The history of Babylonia is largely the history of its defense against the desert hordes, who came on at intervals of a century or two, and generally retreated as they came. Some say that an admixture of nomad invasion built at Nineveh the arrogant kingdom of the Assyrians, who carved great monsters upon their temples, bearded bulls with wings like cherubim, and who sent forth many military conquerors who stamped the world as if with such colossal hooves. Assyria was an imperial interlude. But it was an interlude. The main story of all that land is the war between the wandering peoples and the state that was truly static, presumably in prehistoric times, and certainly in historic times. Those wanderers went westward to waste whatever they could find. The last time they came, they found Babylon vanished. But that was in historic times, and the name of their leader was Muhammad. Now it is worthwhile to pause upon that story because, as has been suggested, it directly contradicts the impression, still current, that nomadism is merely a prehistoric thing and social settlement a comparatively recent thing. There is nothing to show that the Babylonians had ever wandered. There is very little to show that the tribes of the desert ever settled down. Indeed, it is probable that this notion of a nomadic stage, followed by a static stage, has already been abandoned by the sincere and genuine scholars to whose researches we all owe so much. But I am not at issue in this book with sincere and genuine scholars but with a vast and vague public opinion which has been prematurely spread from certain imperfect investigations, and which has made fashionable a false notion of the whole history of humanity. It is the whole vague notion that a monkey evolved into a man, and, in the same way, a barbarian evolved into a civilized man, and therefore at every stage we have to look back to barbarism and forward to civilization. Unfortunately, this notion is in a double sense entirely in the air. It is an atmosphere in which men live rather than a thesis which they defend. Men in that mood are more easily answered by objects than by theories. And it will be well if anyone tempted to make that assumption, in some trivial turn of talk or writing, can be checked for a moment by shutting his eyes and seeing for an instant, vast and vaguely crowded, like a populous precipice, the wonder of the Babylonian wall. One fact does certainly fall across us like its shadow. Our glimpses of both these early empires show that the first domestic relation had been complicated by something which was less human, but was often regarded as equally domestic. The dark giant called slavery had been called up like a genius and was laboring on gigantic works of brick and stone. Here again, we must not too easily assume that what was backward was barbaric. In the matter of manumission, the earlier servitude seems in some ways more liberal than the later, perhaps more liberal than the servitude of the future. To ensure food for humanity by forcing part of it to work was after all a very human expedient, which is why it will probably be tried again. But in one sense, there is a significance in the old slavery. It stands for one fundamental fact about all antiquity before Christ, 
something to be assumed from first to last. It is the insignificance of the individual before the state. It was as true of the most democratic city in Hellas as of any despotism in Babylon. It is one of the signs of this spirit that a whole class of individuals could be insignificant, or even invisible. It must be normal because it was needed for what would now be called social service. Somebody said, The man is nothing, and the work is all, meaning it for a breezy Carlylean commonplace. It was the sinister motto of the heathen servile state. In that sense, there is truth in the traditional vision of vast pillars and pyramids going up under those everlasting skies, forever by the labor of numberless and nameless men, toiling like ants and dying like flies, wiped out by the work of their own hands. But there are two other reasons for beginning with the two fixed points of Egypt and Babylon. For one thing, they are fixed in tradition as the types of antiquity, and history without tradition is dead. Babylon is still the burden of a nursery rhyme, and Egypt, with its enormous population of princesses awaiting reincarnation, is still the topic of an unnecessary number of novels. But a tradition is generally a truth. So long as the tradition is sufficiently popular, even if it is almost vulgar. And there is a significance in this Babylonian and Egyptian element in nursery rhymes and novels. Even the newspapers, normally so much behind the times, have already got as far as the reign of Tutankhamun. The first reason is full of the common sense of popular legend. It is the simple fact that we do know more of these traditional things than of other contemporary things, and that we always did. All travelers from Herodotus to Lord Carnarvon follow this route. Scientific speculations of today do indeed spread out a map of the whole primitive world, with streams of racial emigration or admixture marked in dotted lines everywhere, over spaces which the unscientific medieval map marker would have been content to call terra incognita, if he did not fill the inviting blank with a picture of a dragon, to indicate the probable reception given to pilgrims. But these speculations are only speculations at the best, and at the worst, the dotted lines can be far more fabulous than the dragon. There is, unfortunately, one fallacy here into which it is very easy for men to fall. Even those who are most intelligent, and perhaps especially those who are most imaginative, it is the fallacy of supposing that because an idea is greater, in the sense of larger, Therefore, it is greater in the sense of more fundamental and fixed and certain. If a man lives alone in a straw hut in the middle of Tibet, he may be told that he is living in the Chinese Empire. And the Chinese Empire is certainly a splendid and spacious and impressive thing. Or alternatively, he may be told that he is living in the British Empire, and be duly impressed. But the curious thing is that in certain mental states he can feel much more certain about the Chinese empire that he cannot see than about the straw hut that he can see. He has some strange magical juggle in his mind, by which his argument begins with the empire, though his experience begins with the hut. Sometimes he goes mad and appears to be proving that a straw hut cannot exist in the domains of the dragon throne that it is impossible for such a civilization as he enjoys to contain such a hovel as he inhabits. But his insanity arises from the intellectual slip of supposing that because China is a large and all-embracing hypothesis, therefore it is something more than a hypothesis.
Now, modern people are perpetually arguing in this way, and they extend it to things much less real and certain in the Chinese Empire. They seem to forget, for instance, that a man is not even certain of the solar system as he is certain of the South Downs. The solar system is a deduction, and doubtless a true deduction. But the point is that it is a very vast and far-reaching deduction, and therefore he forgets that it is a deduction at all, and treats it as a first principle. He might discover that the whole calculation is a miscalculation, and the sun and stars and street lamps would look exactly the same. But he has forgotten that it is a calculation, and is almost ready to contradict the sun if it does not fit into the solar system. If this is a fallacy even in the case of facts pretty well ascertained, such as the solar system and the Chinese empire, it is an even more devastating fallacy in connection with theories and other things that are not really ascertained at all. Thus, history, especially prehistoric history, has a horrible habit of beginning with certain generalizations about races. I will not describe the disorder and misery this inversion has produced in modern politics. Because the race is vaguely supposed to have produced the nation, men talk as if the nation were something vaguer than the race. Because they have themselves invented a reason to explain a result, they almost deny the result in order to justify the reason. They first treat a Celt as an axiom, and then treat an Irishman as an inference. And then they are surprised that a great fighting, roaring Irishman is angry at being treated as an inference. They cannot see that the Irish are Irish, whether or no they are Celtic, whether or no there ever were any Celts. And what misleads them once more is the size of the theory, the sense that the fancy is bigger than the fact. A great scattered Celtic race is supposed to contain the Irish. So, of course, the Irish must depend for their very existence upon it. The same confusion, of course, has eliminated the English and the Germans by swamping them in the Teutonic race, and some tried to prove from the races being at one that the nations could not be at war. But I only give these vulgar and hackneyed examples in passing, as more familiar examples of the fallacy. The matter at issue here is not its application to these modern things, but rather to the most ancient things. But the more remote and unrecorded was the racial problem, the more fixed was this curious inverted certainty in the Victorian man of science. To this day, it gives a man of those scientific traditions the same sort of shock to question these things, which were only the last inferences when he turned them into first principles. He is still more certain that he is an Aryan, even than that he is an Anglo-Saxon, just as he is more certain that he is an Anglo-Saxon than that he is an Englishman. He has never really discovered that he is a European, but he has never doubted that he is an Indo-European. These Victorian theories have shifted a great deal in their shape and scope, but this habit of a rapid hardening of a hypothesis into a theory, and of a theory into an assumption, has hardly yet gone out of fashion. People cannot easily get rid of the mental confusion of feeling that the foundations of history must surely be secure, that the first steps must be safe, that the biggest generalization must be obvious. But though the contradiction may seem to them a paradox, this is the very contrary of the truth. 
It is the large thing that is secret and invisible. It is the small thing that is evident and enormous. Every race on the face of the earth has been the subject of these speculations, and it is impossible even to suggest an outline of the subject. But if we take the European race alone, its history, or rather its prehistory, has undergone many retrospective revolutions in the short period of my own lifetime. It used to be called the Caucasian race, and I read in childhood an account of its collision with the Mongolian race. It was written by Bret Hart, and opened with the query, Or is the Caucasian played out? Apparently the Caucasian was played out, for in a very short time he had been turned into the Indo-European man, sometimes, I regret to say, proudly presented as the Indo-Germanic man. It seems that the Hindu and the German have similar words for mother or father. There were other similarities between Sanskrit and various Western tongues. And with that, all superficial differences between a Hindu and a German seem suddenly to disappear. Generally, this composite person was more conveniently described as the Aryan, and the really important point was that he had marched westward out of those highlands of India where fragments of his language could still be found. When I read this as a child, I had the fancy that after all the Aryan need not have marched westward and left his language behind him. He might also have marched eastward and taken his language with him. If I were to read it now, I should content myself with confessing my ignorance of the whole matter. But as a matter of fact, I have great difficulty in reading it now, because it is not being written now. It looks as if the Aryan is also played out. Anyhow, he has not merely changed his name, but changed his address, his starting place, and his route of travel. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.